You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Max Verstappen wins his long-expected third Drivers' World Championship on a chaotic weekend on and off the track in Lusail. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 17, the Qatar Grand Prix. Max Verstappen may not like the sprint weekend format, but he'll have fond memories of the sprint in Qatar, where he sealed his long-anticipated third World Championship. But the weekend will be better remembered for on- and off-track chaos, with serious concerns about tyre integrity around the high-energy circuit and its aggressive curbs. Track changes were made during the weekend, and mandatory tyre stints were enforced. That in turn allowed the drivers to lap at qualifying-like speeds throughout the race. But in the high heat and humidity of the Qatar Peninsula, it pushed several of them to the point of physical exhaustion. This was a very different kind of race, but in the end, Verstappen won again, taking his 14th Grand Prix victory of the season to celebrate his title-deciding weekend in style. To dissect one of the most physically demanding races in years, I'm joined by a man who sweated through most of it. It's Phil Horton. Phil, how are you doing? Hi, Michael. Uh, thanks for that intro. And, well, I say I sweated all the way through it. Um, not in our media <laughs> centre, I didn't. I can tell you that. Yeah, well, we might get to some of the conditions a little bit later on because there's a lot that went into the making of this Grand Prix and why we got the result that we did. To go back to where I think a lot of this weekend started, and depending on your perspective, started to unravel, uh, Pirelli ended up playing quite a massive role in the way everything happened. It started on Friday night when the tyre manufacturer said it found signs of potentially serious damage to its tyres after practice and qualifying. The next day, track boundaries were changed, so essentially the circuit was redrawn in a relatively minor way, but nonetheless. And then by Sunday, we had minimum stint lengths introduced, which really dictated strategy in which tyres could be used and for how long. They all amount to pretty significant changes when it boils down to the elements of what makes a Grand Prix, the circuit, and how you use the tyres on race day. I can't really think of very many recent precedents. You were there on the ground as it was all unfolding. How was it all handled? And, and how has it received all these changes? It was a strange one because I think everyone knows that LaSalle is quite an aggressive circuit on tyres, on drivers, on cars. You know, it's very high speed. It's long G-forces for a long time. It's like Silverstone. It's like Spa. It's like Suzuka. But I think after Friday, everyone was like, you know, that had practice, had qualifying. It was only literally as we were arriving on the track on sun, um, Saturday lunchtime that we got a message through from the FIA that said, you know, Pirelli detected micro cuts in the tyres. And if it persists, there's going to be a stint length of, I think he said 18 laps or 20 laps at that stage for, for Sunday's race, but we'll decide before the race. And that was a bit like, oh, this has suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Like it wasn't a talking point on Friday night because it was only when Pirelli cut the tyres because they were micro cuts that they found it and then went to the FIA. Then it went through all the usual processes. Um, I think it was one of those that it's, you know, Formula One, it shouldn't happen. Then it's like, okay, 
now it has happened how do we find solutions so the the drivers were unhappy that they found out at the same time as we did you know they were saying we shouldn't be finding the information out from the media so that's something they want addressing going forward um the teams found out at the same time because engineers were in you know preparation meetings and suddenly had to be taken out and said oh by the way um we've now got to prepare this 10 minute session before sprint shootout and the track layouts changed you know not much but enough that things need to be to be looked at you know at the maybe the apex speed is slightly slower or you have to tell the drivers you know the, the track limits have changed um so i think it was one of those that pirelli will obviously take some flack because ultimately they're the tire supplier and they're the ones everyone looks at but also they probably did quite a good job to first flag it up when they saw it because it wasn't necessarily a major problem it was something that that could have been a major problem and which considering two years ago it was at the same track where some drivers did get failures late on in stints that probably was in the back of their mind as well um so they, they probably deserve a degree of a degree of credit for for raising it so early and then erring on the side of caution um after saturday's running because you know there wasn't sufficient data to determine not that it could happen but that it probably won't happen you know the, the sprint was 19 laps of which quite a few were under the safety car so weren't at racing speeds there that you couldn't get any long run data from sprint shootout where it's just a qualifying session. So, you know, erring on the side of caution was the right thing to do from their perspective. But I guess, you know, Luceo's got another nine years left on this deal, let alone how many more years we end up staying there. So it's, it's not something that's going to go away before next year's race. So I, I, now the thing is, how do we find a solution so it doesn't happen again next year? This was obviously a much better outcome than, for example, the only precedent that I can think of, the 2005 US Grand Prix. For those who don't remember it or weren't around for it, uh, Michelin tyres were, this was an era of, of two tyre supplies, Michelin tyres couldn't handle the Vankling, the Bridgestone ones could, the sport couldn't come to a solution that allowed the race to go ahead in a normal way, so as a result, the Michelin shot runners didn't race, and we got a six-car race, and it was all pretty weird and uncomfortable for everybody this was obviously a better outcome because we got a race and it looked like any other normal race really if you just tuned in you wouldn't have noticed so much difference but there was the prospect for some drivers and some teams of starting sunday with a weird number of tires considering they were going to have to make three stops when probably were it not for this problem we'd be looking at a two-stop race as tends to be the case for higher deg races it meant not every driver had let's say equal equipment when they might have had they known this was going to be the case do you think it was while it was a good outcome for the sport that we got the race going was it necessarily the most sporting outcome or was there just really no other option the the no other option element is is a good angle to take because you do think what could be done in such a short space of time you know within regulatory framework because maybe something could have been done maybe you could have addressed the curbs maybe you could have done something else but then you might have had one competitor go well actually there's no scope within the regulations to do this and you've got to re-homologate the track you've got to do this so i think obviously you mentioned indianapolis having one tire supplier would have helped now compared to two because you can imagine if only one supplier had found a problem and if theoretically we had a second supplier, they might have said, well, we're fine, which is how Indianapolis unraveled effectively. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the Grand Prix itself, you're right in that there's drivers that suddenly 
some of them were quite hamstrung by, you know, everyone's got to do three stops. We knew that, but there were some drivers that either they wouldn't have had enough medium tyres, they didn't have enough hard tyres, or I think it was Charles Leclerc because of the, the stints he'd done during practice. I think he had something like four laps of flexibility within when he could make a pit stop in order to do the strategy he needed to do. So he may have been quite fortunate that there wasn't an ill-timed safety car that would have completely thrown his strategy out of the window if he's got a stop on laps X, Y, and Z. Um, it made it a peculiar spectacle because obviously we've had three stop strategies in F1 before, especially in the early days of Pirelli when they were asked to make tyres that weren't going to last long for, for wear and degradation purposes. But Well, we've had two stop strategies recently, but when you go into a race and you know it's going to be a three stop, it, it does add a peculiar dynamic to it because you know, well, you know, everyone's doing the same. Because if you were saying, oh, it's a three stop, you'd go, oh, but maybe someone will try a two stop or maybe someone will go really aggressive and do a four stop. But when everyone's on the same strategy, it does, it makes it, it's just a bit peculiar in terms of a spectacle because you, you're seeing graphics that say has to pit no later than lap 18 or this driver must stop by lap 32. And and it just makes it a bit too rigid, was was how I interpreted it. But it was what had to be done uh, because of the situation. We'll come back to the effect it had on the racing a little bit later on, because certainly even from the weather conditions and all that kind of stuff, there was an effect to having three stops mandated on the particular tyres we had. But let's look at the race a little bit more closely in terms of the ultimate result. Like so many this season, Verstappen's win was pretty straightforward. He got pole position and then he led the race and then he won. It was not quite, it had potential to not be quite as clean as usual considering he was very close to becoming collateral damage in the crash between Lewis Hamilton and George Russell, but he wasn't, which means the race win from there was relatively straightforward, except for the fact that compared to most of his margins, which have been pretty large, this race was won by less than five seconds. Unusually small, considering we didn't have any major interruptions after the start, the race was allowed to run forward. For a Grand Prix that was run at such a ferocious pace, and we'll get back to that, as I said, a little bit later on, why was it that suddenly Max Verstappen's lead looked so relatively small? Well, they obviously went for quite a cautious strategy. You know, they had some life in the tyre, so they could do not necessarily an overcut, but stay out in case of the risk of a safety car or a virtual safety car such that they didn't lose the the pit window and and get uh, overtaken. Um, But also, as as Max Verstappen was saying, that one of the RB19's advantage is in in terms of tyre life. So if you've only got 18 laps on a stint maximum, you're not going to see you know, how the car's performing when it's on really used tyres because obviously you're only doing 18 laps on them uh, rather than maybe 25 or 30. Um, it was obviously a race at quite high speed. The driver's doing effectively qualifying lap after qualifying lap knowing that they've got a limit on stints. So you maybe didn't see Verstappen have to push as much as he might have ordinarily done, if that makes sense. And also, you know, he, he said towards the end he struggled on that set of hard tyres. There was a slightly slow stop. He probably didn't need to push to open a buffer because they knew, you know, McLaren aren't going to be t- trying to two-stop because they're not allowed to. So as long as you've done what Piastri was doing, you know you're going to cover him off. There's no need to, to push and, and risk a failure. McLaren being so close, and I guess the element behind all of that was that there's no reason to push the tyres, like you say, 
in essentially a stalemate condition strategically. And the fact that I guess in the background, though everyone felt pretty secure with those stint lengths, you never did know if a tyre was going to fail, no need to press it too hard. But the background was, as you were saying, every lap in this race was essentially like a qualifying lap, which means we got cars performing at the envelope they tend to be in qualifying. And McLaren was pretty close in qualifying. I mean, in the sprint, in fact, got pole position with Oscar Piastri as just one example. And as a result, we got them pretty close behind. What does that say, I guess, about McLaren in terms of the development they've done? We know this upswing has been really quite impressive. And as we were saying, they've had some pretty good qualifying performances. This was their second double podium position, uh, double podium finish now. Does this really just underline how competent that car is, I guess, everywhere except tyre wear, which I suppose you could counter-argue that's so central to Formula 1 these days. I think it is. It, it does show what a remarkable job they've done this season because I think everyone, you know, I was at the launch back in February and they were being very cautious. You know, they said, this is a this is the launch spec car. This is already outdated. We're already working on a series of substantial upgrades that will come through the year at this point, this point and this point. And, you know, yes, we're going to start slowly, but we hope that by the end of the year, we'll have the fourth fastest car. And you're thinking, this feels like we've heard this before from McLaren, you know, that 2021, sorry, not 2021, 2022, they started slowly, got better through the year. And you're thinking, is it happening again? You know, what happens next if they don't improve? But then, you know, since Austria, and then more so Silverstone, it's just been remarkable that they've been more often than not the second fastest car. And now that Oscar's getting more confident, more assured in Formula One, they've got two drivers delivering every race now. Um, they were obviously aided in Qatar by the fact that all of the other teams had problems. You know, if you look at it, Red Bull had Perez still stuck in this negative spiral, qualifying badly, never recovering. The Mercedes drivers obviously uh, took each other out or, you know, Lewis took himself out. George was heavily compromised. Ferrari only had one car in the race. Aston Martin only had one car towards the front because of Lance Stroll's problems in qualifying. But once McLaren were up there in second, you know, Piastri was comfortably second the whole race and Norris never looked like he was in doubt of getting into third once he'd overtaken, sorry, staying in third once he'd overtaken the clerk. So it's a circuit that you would have said suited them if, if you just look at it on paper, but then actually going there and delivering is another is another factor and also in sprint you know Max Verstappen made a bad start was compromised had to recover but he still didn't reel in Piastri to the extent that you thought I think he had three or four laps at the end to do it and that gap didn't really come down um, so that that car's working well it's given the drivers confidence and you look at it now and you do think you know there are sure things where we take Aston Martin in the championship. It's only 11 points. But you look further up the road and you think, I think Ferrari are about 80 ahead, Mercedes about 110. And you think, okay, there's only five races and, and two sprints left in terms of points. But it's suddenly not completely impossible that Mercedes and Ferrari might be looking over their shoulder and thinking, blindly, McLaren could, could still overtake us this year. And that would be a remarkable outcome. I mean, only a couple of weeks ago, never mind months, it seemed like a long shot to catch Aston Martin. But that rate of progress has just been so impressive. And the the, the heaviness of the point scoring as well. The other thing is that it does feel like they maximise their opportunities, all the opportunities that have come to them in the last 
five or six races, I suppose it's been, or however long it's been since Austria. And that's probably the most heartening thing for a team that hasn't always been able to capitalise. Let's look at their race a little bit more closely now. Oscar Piastri was the big winner, or he won on Saturday, finished second on Sunday. It's going to be a very annoying asterisk next to first-time winner for the until he wins a Grand Prix. So if it comes sooner rather than later, just for that sake. Uh, he moved up to second after the Mercedes crashes where he eventually finished it. Uh, Lando Norris had a bit more of an interesting race. Having started 10th, he was then up to 6th at the end of the first lap, and then overcut his way past Esteban Ocon, Charles Leclerc, Fernando Alonso, with some overtaking involved as well. Realising that the tyres could be pushed much harder on Sunday than they had been on Saturday because the track had rubbered in quite a lot uh, and they'd sort of found their equilibrium, if you like. And with the stints limited to 18 laps, as we'd mentioned, there was not really um, an obvious undercut window because the tyres never really dripped off, as you said. And tyre warm-up on the hard tyre meant that the overcut was kind of the more powerful way to go about things. And this had two main effects. The first one was that Norris closed in on Piastri towards the end. He got third place, double podium for McLaren. But it did also force McLaren into a team orders situation, which was, I guess, a little bit of ironic for Piastri because he was getting all the pit, the priority pit stop calls pitting first and they ended up actually to close that gap a little bit because Norris was effectively undercutting him. But the team decided to hold second and third on the podium. Norris, of course, argued a little bit as you'd expect him to do. Was it the right call, do you think, from McLaren at that point in time to decide to keep the drivers in their position given the context of this race? You never like to see drivers told not to race in Formula One, but I can very much understand why McLaren did it. You know, you think at Suzuka, it worked the other way around in, in which, you know, Lando was faster than Oscar, was compromised, and then Oscar was obviously given the instruction of effectively don't fight. But that happened kind of midway through the race. Whereas this one, by the time Lando was catching Oscar, it was in the final stint because obviously he'd started behind, had to work his way through the traffic. He was probably faster. Um, obviously, you can never know because Oscar could quite easily have turned around and said, well, actually, I was just holding position. I could have pushed more earlier in the race if I'd have known that Lando was going to be a threat. So it does create an interesting dynamic there. Andrea Stella said after the race that it's, it's a good problem to have. Or kind of didn't say that right out loud but kind of intimating that this is the kind of thing that will push Lando more you know it's a healthy thing to have um, two drivers that are very competitive um, I think when you get into the final stint of a race it is probably the right thing to do once strategy is unraveled you know second and third you're not going to do any better well I imagine Lando would have been even more annoyed had say Max suffered a last lap failure but he didn't so so we're okay um, you know, you're looking at a race where Mercedes have one driver out, Ferrari have one driver out, Aston Martin only have one driver in the top 10. So you're maximizing your points. You just, you don't want to risk anything. It, it would have been incredibly silly had they started battling, taking time out of each other. You know, one of them could have gone off. It's, it was a tough race weekend. So just, you know, bring it home second and third. It's the, the wise thing to do. Obviously, Lando wouldn't quite have felt that way and I think that radio message was quite funny when he was obviously saying it in a jokey manner of like oh really why why do you want me to do that but you know there was a serious kind of you know make it a funny radio message so that it definitely gets played so that everyone watching knows that he's thinking yeah I could quite easily be second but I'm told not to do. There's always politics at play over driver radio isn't there? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The other effect of the realization that the tires could be pushed really quite hard in this Grand Prix was that most drivers ended up literally almost, cooked by the end of the race, almost literally. Uh, That's the exertion of the 57 laps at qualifying speed in these hot conditions. I guess, first of all, Phil, you were there and you experienced all four days of Doha and LaSalle weather. What was it like this weekend? And what was it that was so difficult about Sunday in particular? We knew looking at the weather forecast before going to Qatar that it was going to be hot. You know, most times Grand Prix in that part of the world are scheduled either at the start of the year, March, or you know, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, or late November, December, which is when we've had Abu Dhabi. Because of the way this year's calendars unfolded and Qatar is moving to early December next year, Qatar's early October, which had us thinking that's, you know, it's going to be hot. You know, you don't have Austin in the summer because of heat and the flip side, you don't have Montreal, say, in March because it would be absurdly cold. When we arrived on Wednesday, the thing that struck me first was the humidity, which I wasn't expecting because I thought it was going to be a you know very dry desert heat. Um, we walked out of the airport and someone's glasses straight away steamed up like the minute you opened the door and my suitcase was covered in water straight away just because of the moisture in the air. And you're thinking, this is straight away felt like Singapore. And you thought, where did that come from? You know, it was only maybe 32, 33 degrees Celsius at that time of day. It was like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. But the humidity was, it very much felt like being in Singapore and we weren't expecting expecting it. But then in the daytime, it was getting, I think the hottest it got to was 41, 42 degrees, which it sounds hot. It's hot to a British person, but it was weirdly pleasant because it's quite a dry heat. So you're, just, you're baking in the sun, but it's so much more pleasant because you haven't got that humidity. Um, and the same with Friday and Saturday, like Friday, I double check this, that Friday, the humidity when qualifying was on was about 50%. Uh, then on, on Saturday, it was a bit warmer, but it was 65%. So you, it, a little bit stickier, but Sunday, the humidity was between, if you're looking at the race time, 75 and 80%. Now that's a, that's a massive change between Friday and Sunday. And, and we felt that. You know, we walked out, obviously humidity levels tend to rise when you get towards sunset anyway compared to in the day, but we walked out of the media centre on Sunday and, and thought, where is that humidity from come from? You know, the grid, everyone looked really warm, e- even people that are used to heat, you know, you could just, you could feel it in the air. It felt, it just felt exactly like being in Singapore, only in Singapore, not, not to belittle the challenges of, Sing- of Singapore, because that's a tough race as well. But it's quite a slow Grand Prix. It's quite a Grand Prix of really saving the tyres. At some points, they're lapping almost 10 seconds off the qualifying pace. But with Qatar, because of the stint length, suddenly you've got drivers pushing almost on qualifying laps in the same kind of heat and humidity, but but doing it at a track where, as we said earlier, the slowest corner is third gear and 100 kilometres an hour. You know, It's high-speed corners. It's long high-speed corners with high sustained g-forces so it was a huge challenge for them and i think obviously they train for that kind of um that kind of challenge but 
I think it would have caught some of them by surprise just how humid it was. Does this idea that drivers, and quite a lot of them were really quite significantly affected, you know, Esteban Ocon said he was sick in his helmet, uh, Alex Albon needed medical attention afterwards at the medical centre, Logan Sargent, he couldn't finish the race, he was a little bit unwell before the weekend, the team said afterwards, but nonetheless, we've seen plenty of drivers finish other races when they've been battling illnesses and it was just not possible for him, and he tried, boy did he try. Lance Stroll said he was on the brink of fainting, said corners were going blurry. Like, drivers were quite significantly affected. For anyone who hasn't seen what they said afterwards, this was not just them getting out and being tired and being exhausted, as we sometimes see them on the podium. This was having a really significant effect on on many of them. It's become a little bit of a, a topic of discussion, I guess, in the sport since then. I know the FIA has since come out and said they want to find ways to avoid this situation repeating beyond simply the schedule itself because of course you never know when a heat wave is going to strike at other places you can't avoid it just by scheduling it in uh, based on the seasons but this idea that this is kind of what drivers sign up to like driving is always going to be physically difficult it is a, a big exertion to drive formula one cars under high sustained g-forces but this idea that these conditions are just what f1 uh, i guess makes f1 drivers it's part of the deal does it ring true to you that that reaction not really. I mean, you want drivers to be challenged. You know, you want them to have to deal with tough conditions. They should be the best drivers in the world, the fittest drivers in the world. But there becomes a point where I think it was Charles Leclerc that said it. You almost can't train for that level of, of toughness because it just, it does get to a point where there's nothing more you can do. If you're dehydrated, you get stuck into that cycle. They can't take on more water because of the limits. You know, they, they don't have much in the car. Once they are sweating, which obviously you need to sweat, but then when you're in the car and you're in a, it's not like another sport where if you're a runner and you sweat, you can kind of wipe the sweat off or you've got that fresh air. If you're in a cockpit, they're just stuck in their own sweat. So then they sweat more. So it almost becomes worse because then your skin's just overheating. You can't get the sweat off. So. I know drivers in the past and some drivers have said, yeah, but this is just Formula One. And you go, yeah, but you don't want anyone to suffer a long-term health complaint. You don't want anyone, you know, getting injured because of it. You know, what if someone had gone off because they passed out, which obviously is an extreme example. Um, I think if it was just one or two drivers saying it, you might have gone, well, maybe they were unwell before or maybe they're trying to make excuses but the fact that so many drivers came out and said that was brutal you know i think what i said that was like torture you know they're all trying to lift their visors up on the straight just to get a little bit of air in but then they're getting sand blown in in their faces um or, or trying to you know george russell was doing he's putting his hands out of the cockpit you know desperately trying to get some air the fact that so many of them who you know they train in extreme conditions they sit in saunas they do you know, the use of the exercise bike in a sauna while wearing a jumper. If people that are doing that kind of training are saying this is too much, you know, I think they're probably the ones that we should listen to rather than people that sat in cars 30 years ago or people that are just sat at home watching on TV and, you know, in a normal weather condition, you know. So I think, I think we need to listen to the drivers on this one because ultimately, you know, why are we watching, you know, we want to watch the best racing drivers race. And if they're just trying to get to the end, that's probably also not going to be a great spectacle. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, in fact, is that, yes, there is a, a degree of the spectacle is the physical exertion, like you want to see drivers committing 100% to the task at hand, but if it becomes a, essentially who can make it to the end, it's not really what circuit racing is. I mean, it's not like... I mean, it's not even what endurance racing is. At least that's the mechanical aspect that's got to make it to the end, and that's its own different competition. But it's sort of not the point of Formula One. Yes, it's got to be difficult, but it shouldn't be a battle to just essentially stay conscious through to the flag. But uh, it'll be really interesting to see what solutions the FIA comes up with because they have committed to to finding solutions or to ensuring this doesn't happen again anyway. Um, Fortunately, we don't have too many races that on paper at least coming up in the next even season that should face these challenges. But like I said, you never know when heat waves and and the like are going to strike. And like you said, only a few days earlier, it wasn't quite as humid at that time. So you just do never know. Let's look at one other element that really had an impact on shaping up this race, because once Max Verstappen won and the McLarens finished on the podium, uh, where you would have expected them to on maximum pace, George Russell, for what it's worth, also finished uh, fourth. He recovered from that crash quite well in the end by using that same overcut technique uh, fundamentally. That's what he was allowed to do. Then we got sort of pace order after that. We had Charles Leclerc finish a little bit further back, kind of where he should have finished based on the tyres he had available. Fernando Alonso spun off the track recovered to where he did behind Charles Leclerc. The lower points, though, and the midfield were decided by track limits. Track limits were a problem even before the track was changed, in case anyone is wondering that, and also subsequent to the track being changed. Penalties were handed out after the race as well, seven in total to Perez, Stroll, Gasly and Albon. A couple of them got double penalties, as well as many during the race, including to Sergio Perez, who was on the receiving end of some... Uh, dry messages, let's say, from his uh, chief engineer. Notwithstanding all of the complications of this race, the heat and the change track, all that kind of stuff, is track limits the best way to police... I mean, the track limit penalties, rather, the best way to police track limits? Considering we had races like Austria early in the year when it was such an issue, Qatar's always been an issue, or the two times we've been there. Is this the best solution? It's really hard because it's that kind of playing devil's advocate where you go, well, what else what's a better solution if we've got this problem of track limits you know I, I think sometimes it's there's some track limits I think are daft when they say either the lap time's been deleted or that counts as one strike because you know there, there's some curves you go over where it's like well that's actually slower I think there was a couple of laps in qualifying I think turn five where people were bouncing over the curves and it's saying you know oh that time's deleted you go well there wasn't actually the fastest way of doing that lap because they're going so wide anyway I think the problem comes in those corners where things like turn 12, like you said, Austria, that final corner, where going wide is the fastest solution. So then you have to stop the driver going wide because drivers will always go for the fastest route possible. Um, I think it works in qualifying when you have the lap times deleted because, you know, it's like a sport. You go out of the boundary, your shot in tennis doesn't count. You your shot in football doesn't count, whatever, you know, you're out of the boundary, that's it, that lap time doesn't count. Um, obviously, sometimes the application of those penalties could come a little bit faster, and I think they did a sprint shootout than they did in qualifying, because after qualifying, we had that slightly absurd situation of waiting for Lando Norris's lap time to be deleted when watching on TV, we could see straight away, that's definitely out. And then obviously waiting for Oscar Piastri's lap time uh, to be deleted as well mid-interview. So that becomes a little bit farcical. Um, but then the problem is what you do in the race because you can't just delete a lap time because obviously they're not going for lap times, it's a race. 
So then you have to come up with a penalty. So in the race, when you're kind of getting these arbitrary penalties where it's, you don't need to go for a lap time, so you can go wide, but three, three strikes is fine. Fourth strike, you get a five second penalty, then another one and another one. So yeah, why five seconds? Why not two seconds? Why not 10 seconds? It's all that kind of thing you think. Is there a better solution that we can't put gravel down because of other categories and the costs? So it's something that comes up every now and then. And the, the fact that we still haven't found the best solution, either either more thought needs to go into it, or this is just something we have to accept as now part of the sport when we go to certain places, where we go to Austria, when we go to Qatar, when we go to, I'm trying to think of another track where, where track limits do sometimes turn up. I think Mexico City's maybe one of them through the S's. Um, probably other circuits I can't think of off the top of my head that you say okay that's just something we have to accept when we go to Qatar that if you go wide in a race four times you're going to get a five second penalty that's now part of the sport we probably don't like it but that's how it is for want of a better solution it's annoying because I always thought that the best solution was very aggressive curbs but it feels like I've been proven wrong once and for all after this race where the curbs were too aggressive in destroying the tyres but <laughs> uh, maybe there would be a better solution with the curbs maybe there's a middle ground we can have where they destroy the car but not the tyres and the lap time someone invent that curb and we might have the solution we all need to this track limits situation yeah, or see, well, yeah, maybe. Yes, if we all just raced at the if all tracks were built on the edge of a mountain, <laughs> then there'd be no issue. Drivers would absolutely be sure to avoid the edge of the track. Uh, these are just some solutions to the problem of track limits. There are others available, presumably, and I look forward to people coming up with them. Until then, though, we just have to deal with track limits here and at a couple of other circuits. Fortunately, it doesn't affect us at too many places. But that was how the Qatar Grand Prix shook out. Max Verstappen is the three-time world champion. I was going to say new world champion, but he's not the same world champion. It's just three times over now. Richly deserved for him. We're probably going to be talking about many more race wins for Max over the course of the rest of this season. But Phil, thanks for joining me to talk about this particular one this week. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be on. Despite the formality of deciding the championship, this race will be remembered for other things. The physical limits of the drivers, the importance of circuit design, curb usage, stewarding, tyre construction. The complexity of F1 is sometimes underrated, but Qatar was a peak behind the curtain. Thanks very much to Phil Horton for joining me to debrief the Qatar Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. I'll be back in a couple of weeks for the United States Grand Prix. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.